Ladies and gents, welcome back to another Engineers podcast. This is your host, Elliot Kipling, and we're powered by Artifacts. Today, I'm joined by uh, Gonzalo Luis, who's uh, CTO of an organization called Endeavor Streaming. We're going to be talking about some really cool stuff that I've luckily had the pleasure of working with him on for the last several years about managing scale and globalization for live OTT sport viewing and some of the challenges that come with that. Stay tuned with us because we're going to be talking about supporting a million plus simultaneous viewership. So there's some really cool, interesting challenges that we're going to be talking about and also the journey and building up to that. Gonzalo, thanks for coming on. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for inviting me. It's been a a standing invitation for a couple of years, isn't it? It has been a couple of years. You're finally here. Great to be here. I'm a, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a listener, though. An avid one? I think I've heard all of our episodes. Um, How have you? Maybe, maybe a few of them kind of halfway and then I forgot, but most <laughs> of them I, um, I've, uh, I've listened to, yeah. That's quite uh, interesting things. I mean, they have quite interesting episodes, yeah. No, good. I've had the luxury of knowing you for years and years and I've been on this journey and can't wait to share this with other people but talk to us a little bit about your background Gonzalo and weave that into you joining Endeavor and that journey yeah oh, well so it, it, this all started in um in kind of a, a different way right when we started it, it wasn't with the goal of becoming this, um, or at least that was not that crossed anyone's mind at the at that time. So we started by building a um, a B two B live streaming platform that um, was was live quite successful for for a couple of years. And main goal was to provide uh, live streaming capabilities to someone else's websites. So we focused quite a lot in um, in bookies at the time. So. If you if you happen to go on um on a betting website and they had in bet uh, in match betting, chances were that 60 percent of the time it would be our stream. So that's how it all started. Um, and then of course there was a couple of there were a couple of acquisitions in the middle. We became ING uh, at that point. Um, we um, started to, to expand, and I remember this one time where um, you know, someone quite senior in the Endeavor group came to me and said, look, there's a potential customer that may want to go um, direct to consumer. Can you do it? Uh, oh, what are you talking about? Of course I can. Um, I had no idea, but you know, I, I had a suspicion that I could. Um, and that's when really it all started. So we've kind of expanded that B2B uh, platform to be a, a, a B2C2B really. And it kind of, a lot comes with it because you go from being kind of a, a, a faceless um, a video management tool in the background to be a website and a paywall and a recommendations engine and a search engine and 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 a, and a video catalog itself and it's just the 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 breadth of what you have to manage just goes up massively and so does the cardinality of the data because it goes from being the event cardinality which is kind of hundreds of events you have to to manage to be millions uh, of users. So from a, from a, a scale standpoint, um, it, it becomes a completely different beast. And also equally, it, become, it goes from being essentially a read-only platform to being a read-write platform. So you know, go from read-only hundreds of uh, um, data um, entities to be read-write with millions of data entries, that was the challenge. So, um, and then we did launch a couple of other clients before that one client that uh, was asked about. Um, and alongside, uh, along the journey, we, we, there were multiple times where we had to scale the platform 40 times, 50 times, 60 times uh, from our previous max concurrency um, because the new customer we were onboarding had that volume. So you, you remember these days, right? It was, it, it, they were kind of quite hectic days. I, there were many, many days I didn't know if I would survive the next day. But I guess that's the thrill of it because you you are building something, you know where the, the fragilities of the platform are. You know that there are chances that they will be um they will be hit the next day. But you need to keep going. You need you need to keep building and um stand up the service. 
and you know, we got to a point where we have uh, 45 plus live uh, clients on a platform. We have three nines, uh, or rather three decimal nines, but five total nines uptime. Um, so I, I sleep much better these days. I have a much bigger team uh, with with a lot of competent people. But those days were great. So that if I would have to highlight uh, in my entire career, the most exciting period was starting something from nothing. So that's that's um, that's that that makes you feel alive. Really. Yeah. And and can we start there? Because like I said at the start of the podcast, I still remember those days, that date where we first started talking about actually building the team. So mm-hmm. talk to us about initially the B2B offering and mm-hmm. building that team and what that looked like. But then this really interesting transition that you've spoken about, about going from B2B to B to B to C and 40xing the platform. Talk to us about those two journeys and some of those yeah. challenges along the way. That'll be really interesting to explore. Right. Really interestingly, when I did have that conversation, with, with an internal conversation where I was asked if I could do it, I, I knew that it, it would come down to essentially two things my ability to hire um, and m- my luck and you know a healthy mix of luck and wisdom in making at least not too terrible technical decisions in the beginning right so so those those were the two big factors luckily the hiring piece went well so at that time you were involved in a couple of those hires and 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 quite a few people from those days are still around you know 7 years on or 6 years on um, which which kind of speaks to um, the journey itself, but also to kind of the the the, the, um, the care um, taken in in the hiring process, um, and and then the technical decisions. Look, I faced a lot of headwinds back then because I think you remember, right? Should we go with Scala? Should we go with Java? Should we go with MySQL? Should we go with Postgres? Should we go um, with Cloud? Should we go with Prem? Um, and I have these. You know, call me old-fashioned, but I have this reluctance to follow technical trends. And even though sometimes I need to make a choice to use the less sophisticated or the the less... Sometimes there's a brilliant choice, you know, the best language for something that is the most appropriate for the problem you're solving, but it doesn't have a backing talent pool to support it, for example. And you then... Once you make that decision, you're going to be fighting against the grain because you're not with the language that you would go with, and you didn't because you wouldn't be able to hire, and you're going with another one that you're going to have to live with for the next, you know, decade or so. Um, so those were stressful days, um, and also in terms of frameworks, what to use. Um, those were I always favored the hireability of the technology. So, for example, we are a MySQL shop. Um, we we are a MySQL shop, um, but is MySQL the best database server available? Probably not. From from any angle you take, it's probably not the best. Right? There's Postgres, there's Maria, there's there's I mean, there's a lot of stuff there. There's of course Oracle and others, but but if you ask a hundred developers, uh, can you deal with MySQL? Ninety nine percent will say yeah. Postgres maybe fifty percent. Oracle maybe twenty and then and and so forth. So, so that th- those were kind of very important and critical, really critical decisions I had to make very early on. That will be very sticky because even though you always aspire to design some, oh, if you can swap out MySQL for Postgres later on, you can. You always build code aspiring to that, give you that option. Really, never do. Uh, it's it's usually too much of a lift for there's diminishing gains there. Um, so I knew this would be a sticky decision. So. And look, there's services much bigger than ours out there that use MySQL. So from a scale standpoint, I wasn't too worried. But I do, I do have the grumpy developer every now and then say, "Look, if you have gone with the Postgres, you wouldn't have this problem." You know, you do have JSON on columns, for example, for free and stuff like that. Fine, yeah, that that's fine. But also, probably I wouldn't be able to hire, I don't know, dozens and dozens of people in like six years that will just have. 100% of skill set overlap with the technology we use. 
So from, from a kind of non-technology standpoint or non-execution standpoint, those were the, the, the biggest decision points. And then how, how do you do this, right? Do you go with, um, do you go with uh, fat jars in Java and you know, put Drop Wizard on it or, 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 or Spring Boot? Or do you try and go serverless and with, with lambdas on AWS and, and, and uh, API gateways and that kind of stuff? How, how do you skin this guy? Right? And, and once again, I went for what's available, right? What can we find? Can we find 20 people that know how to do um, and scale uh, a serverless AWS or a cloud-only um, um, system? Or can we find 40 people that can do that with, with, a, with a fat jar based on, on Drop Wizard or, 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 or Spring Boot? Um, and we went with Lata. So we are Java House with a MySQL uh, um, um, storage. And we have dozens of services running. Look, and we have five nines, which I'm very proud of. Um, the, the biggest technical challenges are what I like to call the hockey sticks. Um, I think I've heard uh, a couple of, of, of um, people on your podcast talking about similar things, right? So it's, uh, it's that rush when something is about to start, especially live sports. Something is about to start, and you have like 20, 30, 40,000 people on your platform. And within the space of five minutes, then suddenly you have 900,000. Right? How, how do you handle this? How, how, do we, how do you sell packages to all these people? How do you let them in through the revolving door, even? How do you authenticate them? Because authenticating someone with username and password is expensive by design, right? You need, you need, you need to use BigCrypt with at least. Complexity of 12, that takes 300 milliseconds. Right? 300 milliseconds, letting 800,000 people logging into your application. If you do the math, and because BigCrypt is CPU bound, you have two CPUs on a machine or four, you can only do four people every 30 seconds. So that's 12 people per second. How do you get 800,000 through the door and door? So those are the kind of interesting things um, that every now and then yeah. come up um, and we solved it. So we've, we've, we've successfully delivered multi-million-plus um, um, live events um, in different, um, in, in different um, brands. And uh, logging in was never a problem. But it was only not a problem because we knew what, we, what, what the bottlenecks would be. Because otherwise, um, otherwise, you see that in many, less and less, but you see that in the waiting rooms kind of things, when you try to buy tickets and stuff, you have a waiting room. Yeah. You know, that's because you didn't think about it before. <laughs> yeah, the I think the foresight that you've shown, especially around hireability and technical decisions, they they do coincide with one another. But those decisions five six years ago, that even then we were speaking about, and you know we've spoken over the years where you've been building up in terms of concurrent users to be here where you are today. You were even then consciously making those decisions about knowing what the platform could look like and what the right technology choices and it's paid off. It really has paid off. Yeah, it's starting to showing its age in, in certain in certain uh, decisions I've made. I mean, the world has moved on and brands have changed and, and, and some of the decisions I made then, and they're still all right. I mean, look, again, I keep saying this, but I'm very proud about it. We have five nines, so it's still working. It's still fine. We can still iterate on the platform, build new features. Um, we have uh, everything has its own secret breaker. Every, everything has its own feature switch. So you have a lot of levers. If something starts cracking, you can turn off an even feature, for example. So, so you alleviate the platform. And this has saved us multiple times, right? So a new feature we released, load test was fine. Um, initial release was fine. But suddenly we have a half a million people using that feature and there's a bottleneck we didn't realize it can be like a thread pool is too small or, or connection pool is too small or whatever it can be whatever right and you turn it off right the platform moves on that feature disappears users might be a little bit upset but it's a difference between someone that look wasn't there a button here before between that or you get an error page and suddenly there's a twitter there's a twitter storm so uh, but but some of those decisions are now kind of they are almost 10 years old right and and some of the choices are almost 10 years old so there's a, an ongoing exercise, and we again, I have a great team that is helping me with this uh, and driving it actually in, in certain in certain ways um, to revisit some of the guidelines that I've wrote down before 
um, how can we adapt them to the new technology that has been released in the, in, uh, in the meantime? So, for example, we now have uh, uh, object databases that replicate under 100 milliseconds uh, across the world. Uh, for example, AWS Dynamo does that, um, and it's kind of almost like a multi-master. It is, in fact, a multi-master database. Can we utilize it to alleviate our relational database connection pool bottleneck? Yeah, we can, but back then we couldn't. So when I say some, some of the things are starting to age is because we now have new options that we didn't have before. Yeah. Well, what opportunities do you think there are now that there are new technologies on the market and the team are driving some of that? What else do you think there is? Oh, there's a lot. There's, I think I'll put them in two categories, right? One is quality of life. For example, just eliminating a bottleneck from a connection pool to the MySQL database because you can now use Dynamo, for example, for a certain use case. Not just something you don't have to worry about ever again, right? That's, that's category number one. And category number two is certain features that you developed over the years, they're now available out of the box as a service. So instead of maintaining, I don't know, 5,000, 10,000, 50,000 lines of code for a given feature, you can just you know, pay a fraction of, of a penny for each million requests for that feature, right? So, so it's, it, it, gives you, it gives you the chance to take the resources that you need to put on maintaining that code in perpetuity because it's your code and just get them to do something else. That, and that something else can be whatever, right? Can be product innovation, can be, can be whatever the business decides to do, but cost of ownership reduction is the second category, right? So quality of life in one hand, cost of ownership or reduction uh, of cost of ownership on, on the second one are, are to me, the, um, the, two, the two biggest opportunities that the new technology is constantly being released by cloud uh, players and, and, and other companies um, gives us. This might be my naivety, but would risk be a factor in that as well? Um, it's not as a risk. There's multiple risks, right? But there's risks everywhere. Owning code is risky because it's your code. It's, you invented it. You built it. So it's not been vetted by, I don't know, 10,000, 20,000, 50,000 people also using that code. That will kind of make it inherently better than you would ever been able to do. The features will not evolve as quickly because it's not backed by a big cloud player or by an open source community or whatever. It's just you. And you have to convince your business that you need to iterate on that, on that feature. So those are the risks there. If you use an out-of-the-box service, and I'm, I'm thinking particularly, for example, on image recycling, right? Image resizing, we've built image resizing many, many years ago. Um, and, you know, is it, the best, is it as good as it could be? Probably not. We still serve images that are too big for certain devices in certain occasions. Uh, we are uh, paying for the CPU of resizing it and we're paying for the bandwidth of serving them. If there's a service that resizes your image um, with all the kind of the bells and whistles you need, which is essentially aspect ratio and, 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 and auto width and stuff like that. And in multiple formats, we end up paying a fraction of of um, of the CPU and bandwidth costs, and it's a service that there's a, a team dedicated just for that. Right? There's I don't know four, five, ten, fifteen people working for this cloud player that is launching this image resizing service. That's their life, making that service better, right? More scalable, cheaper, uh, more accurate in terms of the quality of the images it, it produces and the size of them. So. Yeah, you need to weigh those two things. Uh, if it's something really core to you, I mean, I wouldn't, I, I wouldn't feel comfortable using an out-of-the-box uh, video streamer, uh, right? Um, because I need control about my core product, right? I need to be able to say I want to support this new, I don't know, multi-audio SRT. If if I'm using someone that is not mine, it can I can be lucky and it can be done you know, in, in, before I even want it, or it can take me three years to get it, right? And, and, I, and at, at the same time, I'm talking with prospect clients that have an SRT acquisition, uh, um, acquisition uh, technology that they cannot become a client if we don't support it, right? If, if I own it, then I can knock it out in like two weeks or three, and then I have it. So you need to wait that. But is it image resizing my core business? Probably not, right? Is it credit card processing my core business? I definitely not. So I, I tend to think, what, what is it that makes 
Endeavor streaming the best, right? And that is, it's reliable, it never goes down, and, and the video experience is amazing. And yeah, that's what I need to focus on, right? I need to focus on, on those two things. And then we can add more things on top. Yeah. Yeah, it is really calculating and understand what is the core part of your product and your offering, which you want to be able to control, weighing that up versus what other services can you integrate that you can pass off to other experts in the industry that you don't necessarily need to spend time on, spend time on the things that you really need to focus on. And more importantly, or, or equally importantly, they know better than me of what that is, right? What I'm, I'm, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm not going to be the, the expert on image residing. That's a very, very kind of dark corner of my, of my service, right? It's something we need to do, but it's not something I'm going to spend days thinking about, right? This is going to be someone's life, right? And that person is going to be much more knowledgeable in image resizing for web traffic than I would. So, you know, let, let, let them make the decisions for me. Yeah. Now pay them. Send, them, send me the bill. No. Yeah, <laughs> we we weaved quite nicely into the technology part because we were talking about Dynamo, but I'd love to go back to understanding what managing the network for a live sports service across multiple territories really looks like because I've been lucky enough to understand from you firsthand some of those complexities, but share with the audience a little bit about, about that and just what you've actually had to build and integrate for the platform. Yeah, I mean, sports rights are very complicated to put it mildly, right? So you have you have what we call the um, main territories, which is usually you have a sport property that so the the, the country the country of the, the the sports federation that owns the property, for example, let's say the English Premier League in the UK, that's kind of a you know primary territory or in territory for short. And then you have um, the um, the grey markets, or the, which is there's a sometimes a deal for that property, sometimes there's not. So they kind of flip back and forth between having um, um, a broadcast deal uh, for for that property in that territory or not. And these are the, the dark territories, which there's no deal, no no, one, no broadcaster wants to buy those rights. So um, and all of this is very fragmented. And and and. If you if you go into kind of Canada and US, it's even more so because it becomes a state, sometimes even postcode um, 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 uh, um, market. So to to support this, I mean the 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 data the data structures that need to support this are incredibly complicated because it's also varies um, with time. So if we have blackout windows, and we can, for example transmit a, a live match in certain territories, but then the highlights or the archival of that live match can also be released in a different set of territories, but there's a blackout of 24 hours in certain territories and 48 hours in certain other territories. And it's just, it, it just a nightmare. Uh, it, in terms of just pure mathematical complexity of all the combinations you may have. Um, and then um, to, add, to, add, to add to the fun, then in certain cases you have a requirement of content substitution which means um i'm showing you the content on my website you can't watch it here and you have a button go and watch it somewhere else but that is also on a per territory basis so if you let's say piece of content a can be watched in the uk but if you're in portugal you have to go to a certain other website and if you're in spain you need to go to a certain other website so suddenly you have not to, only to configure the access to the, to the content, but you also need to provide alternatives. If the person is in these territories, there's a button that's going to send them to the local broadcast partner of the federation because they have a deal with them. And essentially, you're sending traffic away to your sometimes your, your competition. Uh, but, you know, as, as I used to say back then, you still remember, we don't really um, dig for the gold ourselves, right? In the streaming part. There's all, all the, other companies within the group that, they do uh, uh, deal with sports rights, but in never streaming does not. So what we do is we provide the tools. So if you want to keep the analogy, the, 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 the pickaxes and the helmets and the, and the jeans, right? And we want to be Levis Cross, right? We want to be the reliable one that you always know that if you use never streaming to put your content out there, it's going to work yeah. and it's going to be flawless. So, so, so yeah, but, but uh, to your point, the, the global nature of it and, and, and the, fragmented uh, deal-making for sports rights in particular 
that's core business, right? Yeah. I would no, I would never, I would never rely on an external service to give me this. Yeah. And um, and it evolved over the years. And there's different rules for video, video on demand, by the way, completely different rules. <laughs> yeah. So. And this, you know, video on demand also has parental controls and has another layer of gatekeeping the content, let's say. So dealing with this um, on itself is already challenging. Then you also have, from a global globalization standpoint, you have the complexity of acquisition, right? You have uh, um, MCRs all over the place and your clients will have MCRs all over the place. What, how can you acquire that stream, right? Because if, if you, that's the first mile. If you cannot acquire that stream reliably, your users are going to suffer. And by the way, the way it's going to represent itself is you're going to have a refresh bump and suddenly you have, I don't know, 5 million, 6 million refreshes on your player page because the stream had a hiccup. Um, and your backend servers have to deal with that as well. So let's try to avoid that in the first place. So, but, but the internet is not reliable. So we found ourselves in positions where we, we've built this recent feature called the wormhole where we essentially acquire the stream locally and then transport it on, 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 on a more reliable backbone than the public internet to get it across the pond, for example, from the US to, to, to Europe or the other way around. So it is complicated, but it's also interesting. <laughs> Digital rights management is just a fascinating space that I only really came to understand once I started working with yourselves and really understanding more about the business. And in truth, I probably don't understand all the complexities, but what you've just explained just gives you a flavor of how complex, how loaded a service can get quite quickly. Oh, yeah, we've got our refresh bombs. Um, sometimes it just, I mean, sometimes things happen, right? We've had this big event, 600,000 concurrent, I think it was at the time. And um, there, was a, there was a hiccup on the, on the network of the MCR. And that manifested itself on, on uh, buffering the video player for, for the users. It recovered quite quickly, like within 15 seconds or so, the, back in, the, um, the backup stream kicked in and, and um, we replaced, replaced the, the streaming. But during, those, during that period, people will refresh 10 times, right? Because they wanted to go back to the content. And, you know, it's, it's, it's hard because your servers are suddenly are humming, humming, you know, quite well. And so, because they are serving whatever the residual traffic is of people still coming to the event. And suddenly there's within 15 seconds, there's 5 million requests. So, um, you know, tough, tough stuff, but, but we've, we've handled it, um, that one occasion. And, um, another, another thing that happens quite frequently is the, the, the payment networks don't give you the payment throughput you would need to let everyone to pay. Right. So if you have, the payment networks and the payment gateways you use, uh, right? Um, they will have a rate limit of some description. Sometimes 100, 100 payments per second or 200 payments per second, 200 payments per second. You often need more than that. So coming up with a strategy of how can we not have um, um, a waiting room, but also at the same time, how can we fly under that limit that is imposed by sometimes by the Visa network or you know a Mastercard network? They have their own limits, and it, it varies over time depending on how congested. You know, if it's cyber, you know, cyber Monday or Black Friday, you're not gonna get get access to a thousand payments per second, right? You just you just won't. So, how my first priority was always I want the people to click the button and start watching. I don't want kind of to wait for the payment because payment always takes time, like five seconds, six seconds, sometimes ten seconds even. And if the network is not, it's kind of throttling you out. I don't want the other user come back later. Right. How can how can you put your username and password, credit card, click play, and you're watching? And how can we make this take five seconds, six, oh, as quickly as you can type your credit card bill? Um, and that was a very interesting piece as well because I I I really don't like to be on waiting rooms on the website, and I do this thing that sometimes is it works in my favor, sometimes against me, which is I don't like it, so I'm not going to give this to my clients. But waiting room, I think, is quite uncontroversial. No one likes to be on a waiting room, right? I've so, been in a dinner queue with you, Gonzalo, so I know. <laughs> yeah, fair point. But so how, how do you how do you how do you do that? And how do you do that with different territorial um uh, needs, different payment methods? Because sometimes you're on a territory that doesn't have really 
enough credit card penetration. So if suddenly using some kind of local payment method, how does it behave there? Look, it's just, it's an explosion, it's a, it's a, it's a explosion of combinations that it's even hard to keep in your mind. The combinations I find fascinating and you explaining some of the technical intricacies here with, you know, Visa as an example of the 100 payments per second or all the way up to 300 payments per second uh, and actually understanding rerouting combinations or how you mathematically solve or technically solve those problems under the hood to actually give a really, really solid user experience where it's clean, you don't know what's going on. I think that's what makes the product so fascinating. Multi-territory with all the digital rights management. It's really complex stuff. And we're talking about a 900,000 people who are watching some of this content. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, hiding the complexity and the ugliness is, is our duty in a way, right? It's our, our duty to our clients and it's our duty for our clients' clients, right? Because remember, B2B2C, right? So we want our clients not have to deal with the complexities of signing a contract with a card processor. Or signing we, don't want, we want this to be uh, as turnkey as possible. And for our clients' clients, I mean, if, if Visa is having a hard time, why, why should they... Because in the end, then it's our website, right? It's our client's website. So they, they don't care if it's Visa. It's just what they care is, I wanted to watch this event and I couldn't. So, you know, that's, that's, our, that's our mission, really. And, and we've been quite successful so far. I mean, there, there, were, there's, there has been outages in a number of payment networks that we were immune to because we, we had all these, um, these mechanisms around it. Um, and, and look, the ability to launch a new, a new brand uh, on our platform um, within 48 hours, if you're talking about the website, is something that I think is quite unique um, in the market, right? So you have credit card payment, you have a paywall, you have rights management, you have uh, um, search, you have recommendations, you have all of the things, all of the things that you will have if you go and check one of our biggest clients. You'll have a, a website that looks exactly like that and we can launch it in 48 hours. Uh, for the website, then the app takes a bit longer because stores and stuff, right? But I think that's that's a quite unique proposition. And and again, it's the I, I would say the biggest, you know, the most interesting thing is all that complexity is just there for you to use, right? All you need to bring is your is your content. Yeah, yeah. The hyper personalization is nuts. Yeah, yeah. it I really mean, is. You, you can go in many of our brands. Well, we have 40-something launch uh, live right now. Some of them will look similar, but some of them will look entirely different. So, um, you know, we have right-to-left uh, um, uh, clients as well. Uh, so, uh, Arabic and, 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 you know, different character sets, uh, different grid views, different sections. I mean, they just look like the entirely different platform. I like to think that people realize it's the same when it's so fast. Yeah. That's what I like to think. <laughs> Talk to us about your work. No, no, no. Talk to us about your workforce. I, I, I agree, honestly, that the job that you and the team have done has been remarkable. Um, talk to us about building a real nimble global workforce to support building such a complex product with, you know, hat tip for you know, five nines and everything else that you've done. Talk to us about what that actually takes to be able to do that. And but before we start, can we can we talk about how you wanted people office based five days oh. a week? Oh, oh my in Chiswick, God. Yeah. Because yeah. that was hellish trying to get you to think about something different. Look, look I again, I'm. I said before during this recording that I'm, I might be old-fashioned, but I, I really like to be in the office with people. Like I thrive on an office environment where there's like 40 people just hammering a keyboard and solving difficult problems. And my thinking back then, the, my thinking hasn't changed really. I still like it, and I still, I still think you lose a lot. Right? You lose a lot in terms of passive uh, 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 listening. The number of problems we avoided because someone overheard something was enormous. And now we've lost that. 
right? And 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 also every single thirty seconds chat is now a half an hour meeting. Um, so you lose a lot. But pandemic broke my back. What can I say? I mean, it wasn't. I didn't really change my mind. I just realized if this is going to happen, what what can I take from it, right? And and what we did was we just started hiring everywhere, right? We have the privilege of the Endeavor Group having a, um, an enormous footprint, global footprint. So our uh, recruitment targets is now pretty much around the entire world. So we have people in many different countries. We have countries with only with only one people working for us. We have uh, countries with 15, 16 people. Of course, the main uh, development of the engineering center is, is in, in London. But um, we have Portugal, we have Italy, we have uh, uh, um, uh, Kiev, we have... Um, Budapest, we have um, uh, Prague, um, we have, and there's more, uh, Gdansk, um, it, it just almost a candidate pops up and is a good candidate, we're going to hire them, right? That's, that's, um, that's um, the conclusion I, I got to. If, I thought if, if I'm going to ask people to come to the office, they're going to resign because that's not the reality of the world today. They have different expectations. So I just had to learn to live with it. But I still miss those days. I still miss the days where I had a question, I walked up to someone, and 30 seconds later, I will be back. And now I have to book a meeting, right? It's, or you can ask a question on Slack, but it's, it doesn't feel the same. But again, I might be old fashioned. The team is happy. Um, it was people from what your offices fly in regularly, um, and we go for drinks and, and you know, socials and that kind of stuff. So. I think I've made the right decision, and I think I was too stubborn when you tried to um, convince me that that was the way. I didn't want to see the lights, but I think what you couldn't do, COVID did for you. So, yeah. There we go, <laughs> convincing you back then. But listen, I think as a CTO, you have to adapt. Uh, you did what I think the modern world is doing. Um, and, you know, I, I think it's paid off. It's paid off in some of the decisions that you've made, and, and agree. But you know, you you do lose that in-person collaboration that's obviously been really important to building the foundations of Endeavor Streaming. But it's probably given you um, something slightly different to the business yeah. as well. You and know, diversity in talent, and it's just different personalities as well. So you have people from Eastern Europe, which have different personalities. Usually, the people from Western Europe or from the US or from you know, Northern Europe. So you kind of, you know how I feel about diversity in the workplace in terms of having people from all corners of the world and with all, all the mindsets and just the simple fact of having more nationalities in the team and people not, not only from a different country, but people that actually are embedded on that country because culturally they will be different. It's yep. good. So that's, you, that's a massive, massive positive for sure. Yeah, you've always been that one advocate in my network who has always said... I want people from any backgrounds, bring them to me, bring them to my yeah. team. You've always, always been a strong advocate for that. Yeah, I mean, look, difference is key for success, I think, Dif difference of thinking, right? And um, I still stand by that. But, but back to your previous question, I think it's really important to point out. One of, one of, the, one of the key things for us to have all this uptime and to have all this success in terms of managing these, what I can say, madness of complexity is that the ownership that i gave to my teams since 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 the beginning so we, we don't we don't we don't have this kind of uh barrier between writing the code owning the code operating the code right so whoever writes the code is the same person that puts the code in production and he's the same person that fixes the production bug uh, and that sense of ownership which is a applied to all the levels of seniority, right? I have this kind of, I, 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 every time someone, someone new joins, if they haven't put something in production in the first two weeks, I, I start poking around and say, what are you working on? Why don't you work on something simpler so we can get your work in production quicker, right? And I, I, because I like that. I like people who are fearless and they want to put something in production very, very quickly. We deploy daily, right? Multiple times a day, code is always going out. and that sense of ownership, it's what allows us to be 100 plus strong developers and still deploy every day, right? Still have this close, uh, uh, this very short um, release cycle. So I think 
the answer to the previous question is really the the the, the, the nimbleness of the team is is a, is directly related to the ownership that that team has of the work they do. They don't throw it over the fence for someone else to operate and deploy and run and and, and monitor. It's it's their life. Their life's not running code. Their life is the code in all these all these all these um, fronts. Writing it, designing it, operating it, monitoring it, fixing it, all of those things. I think that's for me the 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 best organizational decision I've made when when we started this journey. Yeah, and that was really early on. By the way, that was like rule number one. I remember. You remember? Has, that, yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, I remember. I remember. Like our WhatsApp messages is in. I want someone fearless. I obviously, yeah. spoke yeah. on the phone about all these things, but. Are they fearless? Uh, how yes. how easy is it to coach that culture? How difficult is it to coach that culture? Um, it's a good question. I, I don't know. I, I, I think there's a degree of you either have it in you or you don't. Um, um, as a person, right? Depending on your background, your your you know the way you grew up and the education you got, um, but. It also depends where you've worked before. Sometimes it's doable, sometimes it's not. Now, what, what, what I really start by saying is, I don't care about failure. Right? I, it, sometimes we have kind of these kind of RCAs and postmortems, something went wrong. And I, I come in and you know, some people I don't know as well, not, not uh, as close to, and people are a little, oh, why is he here? What, what's gonna happen? And I always start by saying, I don't care about making mistakes. I'm glad you've made that mistake, right? Because you tried, you, you, you did the work, you put it there and you missed something, that's fine. Now, what I want to know is how many clients were affected, how many, you know, how many payments did you lose, how many 500s did you produce, that kind of stuff. That's what I need to kind of run the conversation from here on. That you made the mistake. I mean, if you make this mistake three times, we'll have a conversation. The fact that you've made a mistake, I don't care. I, I think we, in, in Europe, we don't. I think the Americans are much more evolved in that in that sense. Right? They they value failure. Right? How many times have you failed in the past? How many times did you screw up production? How many times did you have to scramble because production was down because you made a mistake and you had to fix it? I think that's really valuable. And it just so happens that the people I hire, because I ask all these questions in the interviews, come with a degree of you know fearlessness attached to them already because they were successful in the interview because I asked these questions, but. If someone is too cautious, it's really hard to turn them around it's because they may, may have been told off or fired before because of mistakes um, or, you know, the previous management was really intolerant and they kind of had all this release cycle of six months before they put something in production. So making a mistake was really, really costly because you had six months worth of cycle, right? But in here, if you make a mistake in the morning, you can put a fix in production in the afternoon. So... It's more costly not to try than to try and, and fail, uh, in my view. So, and that's what I really try to bring into the culture. But it's not easy. Some people just don't want to do that. Yeah, I bet. You do really embody that value. And I think it's important that that conversation starts with you and I. It starts in the interview process. You really embrace and live and breathe that value, which makes it a lot easier for people, by the way. It's not just like a one-off conversation as in, hey, don't worry about it, but you live and breathe that value, which is really important to go and build a really good service that you've done. <laughs> Look, and sometimes I lead by example in the, in the worst way possible, which is I make my own mistakes and I put my own errors in production. So, you know, in, in a way, I, I would rather not. But yeah. when, I do, when I do, I publicly um, uh, advertise it because I think it's, it's good for people to realize, right? You know, I put something in production as a slow query. That query took 15 milliseconds, not a second, right? So that, that's my fault. <laughs> and and, and I mean, in the end, if, 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 if people live these, through these things day in, day out, unless you're really adverse, they will kind of become more and more uh, uh, willing to, to take risks and to make proposals and to make mistakes. But some people don't. And I, we've... we've some people left because they, they didn't want that environment, right? Where it was really pushing for action and to do stuff. Um, and they wanted something a little bit quieter, which I respect. But, you know, we parted ways with a few. No, okay. 
makes Long sense. It, it does happen. Uh, following on from that, talk to us a little bit about some of Endeavor Streaming's growth and what that lo- might look like for the next six to 12 months, whether it's product growth, people growth, give us some snippets. Yeah. Um, so, so three types of growth, like, like team growth and, and, and um, um, client growth and product growth. So products, you will know I'm not the best product person in the world. I mean, you can argue I'm one of the worst, but um, we, we have a lot of features to build, right? There's a lot of, there's a lot of uh, innovation stuff um, that we want to do. We want to provide like, this, you know, Apple just released out these, these goggles. I have no idea I'm going to build something for them or not. I, I, don't, I don't know. Um, but there's a, there's a solid roadmap of 12 to 18 months worth of features. And that might be something simple like improving our parental controls or something more sophisticated uh, and, and very secret I cannot tell you that is going to change the world. Uh, hopefully, that would be true, but I, I, don't, I, don't, think, I don't think it's going to happen. Um, so product growth, I would just you know, leave it for another podcast maybe with someone else. But in terms of, um, of business growth, so uh, as you know, our, our goal is to be quick and get our clients a, a, a direct-to-consumer opportunity for them to sell their content. So I expect that we onboard dozens of clients um, within the next 12 months. We've done so um, in this year so far. We will continue to do so uh, to year end. And a healthy, a healthy never streaming is a never streaming that has the uh, uh, um, technical, operational, and commercial, commercial cap- uh, capability to bring in more and more clients um, without degradation of service in terms of technical service and customer support service and, of course, uh, client management service. So we are built to scale. We are a technical platform and we, want, we need to be an, a, 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 an organizational platform as well. So um, in terms of team, we are now going through a period where, because we're taking on these opportunities of um, looking at what we do and try to readjust so we can do uh, more with less is the phase we are in right now. Of course, the macroeconomics um, also forces us to that place. So we're not hiring as fast as usual. We have plenty of open roles, uh, uh, as always. Um, and if, you know, someone, if someone uh, listening to this has kind of likes what he's hearing and, um, and, and likes the challenge and this type of environment, we're always happy to have a chat. We're having, we always have a place for talented people, but it's not hiring as much as last year and the year before. Um, so in terms of team growth, I would expect um, to be slower this year. And you know, next year, it's going to be a question mark. It's, it's going to depend really on, 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 um, on, the, on market trends. You see, you see technical layoffs left and right everywhere. We haven't done it and we, we have no plans to. So we're trying to keep it that way. Um, that's, that's, um, that's our focus. And we do that by accelerating our development by making our code base easier to manage um, in the way I've, I've mentioned before. So you need to, you know, uh, you need to be water in a way, right? You need to kind of scale out really quickly and you have the opportunity and then you have to rationalize when you're forced to. Uh, but one thing has to be constant. You always need to be, you always need to be able to write more value into the platform quicker, even if that means doing so with the same number of people. And if you cannot hire more people to go fast, you need to do something else to go faster. And that's something else right now is sanitizing or, or rationalizing some of our uh, technical decisions, and most of them made by me in the past. So um, that's how it looks like. But from, from, a, from a commercial standpoint, I mean, we have a, a very healthy um, um, commercial pipeline. We have lots of opportunities pursuing. Um, and the, the great thing is that people come to us and say, oh, I have this content I would like to um, go direct to consumer with on these three territories. Can we have a website? Sure thing. He's, he's yeah. the key, he just turned. Yeah. Which is, which is uh, great. I think commercially, how you've evolved has been phenomenal. Team-wise, how you've evolved has been great to see. It's been great to be a part of. If you're a back-end engineer, front-end engineer, uh, if you're in the mobile space, data space, across some of the locations that Gonzalo earlier mentioned, check these guys and girls out. And I think Gonzalo is. Uh, I'm biased, but a phenomenal leader, and you've heard some of his values and his ethos. But 
reach out to him or some of the team that are actually attached in some of the description below and you can check out some of their careers or reach out and understand if there's a place for you in the team. And yeah, I, I might save the product podcast for yeah. for someone else. Um, yeah, I won't touch sure. on that part. Um, but yeah, those locations are any other really. We, we again, COVID broke my back in terms of um, um, that, that location flexibility. So any new location, we're not afraid of hiring someone new on a new, you know, somewhere we never hired anyone before so so yeah a, a massive thanks for for coming to join us you know it's been I can, massively I can, I can carry on for another three hours if you like yeah you probably <laughs> could to be fair we probably could to be fair um but a massive thanks for coming on sharing the stories over the last six seven years hearing about the evolution hearing about some of the foresight team building ethos culture some of the engineering challenges it's it's been great to get you on the pod and for everyone listening like share subscribe go and follow gonzalo um watch what these guys and girls are doing reach out to some of the team about opportunities but for sure a big thanks from us at engineers artifacts and myself elliot thanks, kipling gonzalo big thanks thanks for your patience all, all this time i know it's been a while What's it been? I love it. Two, three years? Let's do another one in a couple of years. Yeah, we will. We will. From everyone at Engineers, bye for now. Hey, guys. Thanks for watching this episode. Uh, massively appreciate you listening and checking in with us. If you want to find out more about us and what we're doing, please check us out on social media. What we're trying to do at Engineers is build a community to drive knowledge, sharing and experiences. On Twitter, we can be found at engineers.io. It's no underscore. We've also got a website, which is engineers.io. These links will all be posted in the description. Any feedback and comments are massively appreciated. We're always looking to improve on where we can. Thanks, guys.